0: Issue for all women. Hello, hello, and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. Mickey here. If someone says the word Syria, what do you think? Refugees? Civil war? Horrific dictatorship? Libraries? Okay, possibly not that last one. So when journalist and Middle East correspondent Delphine Minwe discovered a photo of an underground library amid the rubble and battleground of the besieged Syrian city of Daria, she had to discover more. And so started the incredible story of the book collectors of Daria, which has now been translated from its original French by Laura Vergneau for Picador. It's an astonishing tale of bravery and books. And I had a fascinating chat with Delphine about Daria, the rebel she befriended, the women in hiding and making an invisible story visible. Hands up, despite a lot of reading around what's happening in Syria and why, I have sometimes found the ever-moving, multifaceted situation hard to grasp. And so Delphine's expertise was really useful for me in getting the facts straight. She is a fearless, talented and resourceful seeker of the truth. So if you fancy finding out more about what Delphine writes about, you can follow her on Twitter at Delphine Minoui, and that is D-E-L-P-H-I-N-E-M for mother, I-N-O-U-I. And if you want to see photos of the cats of Istanbul, you can seek her out at the same handle on Instagram. I am joined by Delphine Minoui, award winning Middle East correspondent for Le Figaro and author of The Book Collectors of Dariah. Delphine, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me. So, The Book Collectors of Dariah was originally published in France three years ago and has now been translated here. And it is the extraordinary real-life story of a band of young Syrian revolutionaries and the underground library that got them through a war. It's a tale of transgression through learning and a city under siege using books as, to use your phrase, weapons of mass instruction. How did you come to tell this astonishing story? Well, I got to
1: find uh, those amazing book collectors by, uh, by coincidence. It was a time when it was becoming too dangerous for reporters to keep on going on the ground in Syria. Mm -hmm. I was blacklisted by the regime. I couldn't have access to Damascus anymore. It was becoming very hard to even to reach out to the rebel-controlled areas, as the violence was increasing, as, sadly, some of my colleagues had been kidnapped. Some of them had been killed by the the rising uh, jihadis back then. Mm -hmm. So I was facing a dilemma. How could I keep on telling the story, the important story of Syria, of the peaceful Syrian revolution, without being able to to go out there? So I started surfing the web. I started getting connected to all the social network, um, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook. And one day, as I was uh, flipping through different pages on Facebook, I bumped into a specific page, which is called Humans of Syria, which gathers a a collection of pictures taken by Syrian civilians themselves. One of the pictures was really striking. It was the picture of two young guys with uh, baseball hats on their head, with sweatshirts dressed by any young guy Mm -hmm. all around the world. And they were surrounded by uh, walls of books. So it looked like a library, but there was no light. There was no natural light, no window, no door. There was just a little caption. It was very intriguing, I would say, because this, this picture was coming out of a war zone of Syria, and those guys obviously looked like they were reading books. And the caption was uh, very striking too. It was just referring to a secret underground library in Daraya. Yeah. And of course, I knew about Daraya. I knew that Daraya was one of the first cities which stood up against the regime of Bashar Mm al-Assad in March 2011, which was, by the way, exactly 10 years ago. I knew about this amazing city where where people, despite the violence, uh, despite the pressure from the regime, people were still trying to celebrate democracy, freedom and justice without weapons. I remember this beautiful symbol back then when uh, protesters were met by bullets from the regime, and they would keep on uh, giving uh, bottles of water with roses to the policemen and to, and to the soldiers. Anyway, so to come back to this picture, I was really struck by this picture, and I wanted to get to know more about what was the story behind the picture. Mm-hmm. So I got in touch with the administrator of this Facebook page, who kindly put me in touch with one of the co-founders of the library. Who also had taken this picture and his name is Ahmad. And that's how the the story started up, by reaching out to Ahmad and try to get to know more what was going on inside this underground library.
0: It is incredible. And you've just touched on something I wanted to ask you there. There's a moment in the book when you ask yourself whether when you're talking to Ahmad, you're talking to a terrorist. And to clarify, you're not. But I think that moment of hesitation for you reflects how confusing and complicated the situation in Syria is, because even for someone with your high level of knowledge around it, there is that confusion. And I think a lot of people, and myself very much included in this, don't have a huge grasp on what has happened, and indeed what is still happening in Syria, because as we've just mentioned, the war is ongoing, apart from this shit is horrific, and... Bashar al-Assad and his family's regime are also horrific. Can you put into, this is a big question, can you put into layman's terms why a civil war has been raging in Syria for a decade? On
1: the one hand, you have uh, a real dictator using uh, the most extreme brutality of uh, the 21st century. Mm -hmm. A man who basically declared war to its own people. I mean, sadly now, uh, the big Western media headlines portray Syria as, as a, a war zone. But we tend to forget who started the war. At the beginning of uh, March 2011, people went to the street. They were asking for reforms. They didn't want to topple the regime of Bashar al-Assad. But because they were met with so much violence, they had at one point, for some of them, to take up weapons, to defense their cities, mm-hmm. to defend their friends, their relatives, their cousins. I mean, it's a regime who, at the beginning of the revolution, not only was firing as the demonstrators in the streets, but the regime forces would go to the funerals of those who had been killed. Yeah. And they would start killing the, the, the innocent people, innocent families who were not even allowed to mourn their sons, their brothers. And that's how it all started. Like the regime never accepted to open up for dialogue. And that's why at one point people turned into violent actions and very quickly it turned into a civil war. But now, sadly, when we portray the situation in Syria, we often talk about either the regime of Bashar al-Assad or on the other side, the jihadis, yeah, the yeah. Daesh people, mm-hmm. uh, who took over certain parts of the country with also very terrible violence and who would oppose to the Basist regime ideology, another ideology, we, which is the ideology of violence and Islam, extreme Islam. And sadly, people like Ahmad and his friends and the other co founders of the library, underground library of Daraya, who were the first people who went to the street, their voices have been erased from the narrative of Syria today. And that's the sad part. 10 years later, I mean, 10 years later, what's left? A country which is totally devastated, a country where one out of two inhabitants have been either displaced or turned into a refugee. Above that, you have hundreds of thousands of people who have been killed. Yeah. And as we are talking today, a lot of opponents are still facing harsh torture, including rape for women yeah. inside the horrible jails of
0: Syria. In that number, there's like, I think it's 193,000 people who are missing and therefore presumed dead. The the stats are horrific and it's just I think it's shameful for the rest of the world looking at Syria and the inaction and it's become a story that's almost invisible. So you've won awards for your reporting from the Middle East but obviously you weren't able to travel to Syria for this story and again it's a question you ask yourself in the book but how do you go about describing something you can't see? How do you make a story that is basically invisible, visible? It was
1: a, a very challenging exercise. Right. <laughs> it, it was the first, kind, first time I was, I was facing such a, a situation after covering the Middle East on the ground for almost 20 years. But I thought this is an important story to tell for the sake of the new generation, for the sake of understanding really what happened. It's our duty as reporters, as writers, to immortalize these even tiny and fragile parentheses of a search for democracy mm-hmm. in, a, in a country facing uh, the tyranny of a regime. It, it was my duty to, to give the voice to the voiceless people, to give a voice to what I call these sort of anonymous heroes. Those guys never, never made the headlines. And by the way, it's just thanks to a tiny picture that I managed to reach out to them and to, to, to tell their stories. It's incredible. And and to me, telling the story of Daraya was trying to open up a little window to this country, which has become totally inaccessible to the mainstream media, to be able not to forget, not to forget what what, what happened. And to remind the whole world that actually, and this is important for me too, Daraya is just one example out of so many others, which we don't know about, sadly. I mean, thankfully, by the years, amazing documentaries are coming out of Syria, other amazing books, including books written by Syrians themselves, telling us other stories, like the story of amazing nurses, who have worked for all these years in underground makeshift hospitals, the story of people who have run schools while bombs were keeping on dropping, the story of people who, who created like uh, talk shows on, on radios to try to, to, to keep up with a certain dialogue, a democratic dialogue, where while the pressure was still going on. So, I mean, to me, it became like an evidence. As a writer, as a reporter, I had to write this story. I mean, I I couldn't help but spend hours, uh, days, weeks, months, years to talk with those guys in Daraya. It was challenging because um, obviously they had no electricity, uh, the internet was not working very well. So some days we couldn't reach out to each other for maybe even more than three weeks. But I would learn from them how to be persistent and resilient. To try to manage to you know it's like making a puzzle you have destroyed pieces scattered all around and I was trying just to to put up these pieces back together for one sake for for, for one main reason trying to get as close as possible to the truth So that's why even to go back to your previous question, at one point, indeed, I was not sure who was Ahmad exactly. He was telling me about these amazing books he was reading, from self-help books to French literature going through Palestinian poetry. But who was the real Ahmad? Mm -hmm. Uh, Was he fighting himself besides uh, reading books? What was he doing? Has he killed anyone in his life? And... That's why I, it was very important for me to stay in touch as much as possible with them, asking them to send me pictures of themselves, videos, talking to them through, through the internet, like I'm talking to you today, yes. to try to, indeed, to put all these pieces back together and try to, to tell the real story of Daraya, the other side of the story, as opposed to the narrative of the regime, who was trying to portray those guys as simple simple jihadist terrorists.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you spent so much time over the years with these young men and they became your friends and the bond is really apparent in the book. There's a terrifying time when contact just totally disappears. You can't reach them, they're not responding, your messages on WhatsApp are showing as just not even received. You must have been frantic... And then obviously, it's not long after that, it becomes quite clear that the story isn't going to end how they or you want it to. How did you feel then? Because you were personally involved. In such a project,
1: it's really hard indeed to, to keep distance with the story without taking any side. I mean, it's, it's our goal as reporters to, to remain neutral. But in face of such a tragedy, I couldn't help but... Uh, bonding with those guys yeah. and uh, being scared for themselves when I would be talking to them and I would hear from distance the bombs dropping when the line would get cut and when I wouldn't get any news from them for days, for weeks, sometimes for months, I would worry. Sometimes I couldn't sleep at night just waiting for. A simple call a simple message or even just a tiny smiley or emoticon yeah. uh, for them to tell me we are okay we are alive and that was really challenging and what struck me to give you the the beautiful human human dimension of those guys is uh, while i was worrying for them from their tiny enclave in daraya from a city which was totally cut from the world. I figured out one day that they were also worried for me. The day when the terrible attacks happened in Paris and some terrorists attacked the the, the Bataclan, the the concert hall. And next day, when I woke up, the first email I had in my email box was an email from Ahmad asking me if I was safe enough, asking me if my my dear friends and my, my dear relatives were okay. I found it so powerful. I realized any doubts I could have about those guys, those doubts were just like going away. I mean, someone who lives under bombs, sometimes they were facing more than 80 bombs per day on their city. Someone who was facing death on a daily basis was worrying for someone else he didn't know, (laughs) kilometers away from him, just asking me if I was okay.
0: the library's very existence, let alone the courage it takes these guys to build it, is revolutionary, was revolutionary. Dariya never had a public library under Bashar al-Assad and books and reading materials are often a first port of call for dictatorships to get rid of, aren't they? So it was a real revolutionary and sort of civic act to go and rescue these books.
1: It's very interesting because at the very beginning, they didn't realize themselves how important this act of saving books was. It started with just a group of of young guys, a group of friends, who thought, "Mm, let's try. I mean, the the city is is destroyed. Almost 90% of the city is destroyed. And they thought, let's try to save what's left from the cultural heritage of -hmm. the country, of the city. But step by step and days after days, they managed to save 15,000 books, which is pretty important. And then they thought, where shall we put them? And they found a basement in the city and they started gathering those books and organizing them by theme inside this place, which became an underground library. And what's striking is um, months after months, this library became a safe heaven but it also became sort of a, an underground university yeah. where anyone could go borrow a book and at a time when they were totally cut from the word they would find by flipping through the pages of books they would find a way to get access to the word because they were in front of an amazing diversity of books without any censorship, which they were used to, without any propaganda, it would be an amazing window to get to learn about their own culture, but also about what was going on outside uh, the world. What I found very touching is this amazing sense of, um, like the sense of belonging to a group and preserving the group, protecting each other but also protecting each other's belongings because each book they decided to to put on the first page of each book a number and the name of the owner of the book with the dream of giving back each book to whom it belonged to once the war is over
0: yeah and I found it just amazing Again, it's that empathy, I think, and that connection. And obviously, sadly, it didn't happen because when Dariah fell, the library was destroyed. What I found really interesting, I really loved it, was the fact that loads of the guys you were chatting to admitted that they hadn't really been into reading before the war. And I guess it touches on what you've covered there about, well, the reading material was propaganded or censored to the the point of there just being blank pages, but the when they did get into reading there were some really interesting choices that became their favorites which ones were most surprising to you and why <laughs> it's amazing because all most
1: of those guys admitted that they hated reading they to to them reading a book was uh, uh going through the the, the propaganda coming out from the regime, any book they would open up when they would be at school would have the, either the portrait of Bashar al-Assad or the profile picture of his father, Hafez al-Assad. Uh, so to them, the, the, the book, like opening a book meant reading propaganda, reading one idea, one rule, one ideology and when they started like opening up those books they discovered like so many different ideas um, to give you examples they would uh, bump into the little prince of saint-exupery they would read um, the alchemist of paulo coelho which has been translated all around the world which we all read when we were young as well and one of the most unexpected book which became their let's say, uh, th- th- their reference, like their, their new Quran, <laughs> as they also were challenging religion, was a, a self-help book <laughs> written by an American writer, Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, a bestseller all around the world, which had been also translated in Arabic. And this book became their reference. And when I asked them, huh, how come would you read such a book in, in the midst of war? And their answer was very clear. They were telling me, look, we live in chaos. Our life is a mess. Our city is a mess. We have nothing to stick to, but by giving us sort of guidelines, this book somehow helped us to put sort of an kind of order into our chaos. Yeah, And that's why, so not only they, they kept on reading this book, but for those friends who didn't have time to, to read the book, they would organize tiny conferences <laughs> and nice. tiny, tiny classes, like
0: classes inside the library to teach their friends about the book this book that's been written to help people in the western world get through breakups or you know a job loss or something is suddenly becoming like survival tips for people in the midst of horror it's astounding isn't it so we're all about women's voices on standard issue and obviously you're a woman who does an incredible job still in a very male-dominated field but there aren't any women's voices within the book collectors of Dariah why is that It's a very
1: important question indeed. I was really eager to reach out to the women in Daraya because I knew they were there. I knew that so many of them were brave enough to to stay and live through the siege Mm -hmm. while many other families had already left. To give you a picture, at the beginning of of 2012, at the beginning of the siege, um, Daraya was made up of more than 250,000 people. Wow. And by the end of the siege in 2016, you had barely 10,000 people left. But among those people who left, uh, of course, obviously, you had a lot of young male activists, as well as young men fighters, who actually also became readers of the library, but you also had women. Sadly, I couldn't get access to them because they were hiding in the basements of their buildings, taking care of the children. The connection, the internet connection, was working in just a few specific locations in Daraya, including the media center, which was close to the library. So that's why my my main uh, point of contact were uh, male activists. But indirectly, I got in touch with those women through letters that they would send to me through pictures and testimonies the men would gather and send out to send to me and i got to know about them by understanding that they were actually very very active in uh, the field hospitals working and taking care of injured people when the bombs were dropping they built up different underground schools and more important than anything they were taking care of the kids inside the basements when they would keep on on crying, sometimes sadly peeing in their pants because the bombs were dropping and they were so scared. And they would made a point to ask their husbands or brothers to borrow books, children books from the library, bring them back to the basements of the buildings for them to be able to read those books to the kids. And those books also help, helped out not only the women, the mothers, but also the, the children to be able to, to, to survive or to, to create sort of a distraction to try to forget the constant bomb droppings inside, inside the city. And another woman who I wished I could have reached out to her, but it was too dangerous for her to talk to me, was this amazing woman who actually uh, one night uh, went from the regime-controlled area to the rebel-controlled area of Daraya and brought under her veil a camera for those guys in Daraya. And today, as we are talking, it's somehow thanks to this woman that we managed to get pictures coming out from Daraya because she brought them the camera which they used for four years to document the situation and take amazing videos of the siege of Daraya, of the library, of the different projects, including um, street artists who would paint amazing murals on, on the destroyed walls of the city. So it's thanks to her that today we, we can manage to have a better picture of what was going on, what was really going on inside inside the city.
0: Yeah, you mentioned in the book that the invisibility of women allowed them to be like really effective smugglers across the border, the one remaining way of getting across places or out in and out of Daria. And so that's what the women were doing, as well as sort of keeping the society together, keeping it running. It's an extraordinary book, Delphine. I think you know we have moments where that world comes into our world with various suicide bombs or attacks or just that war zone comes into our world for a short time but you've really captured what it's like to to have that every single day and yet it's a book that's just really full of hope as well and I think that is it's a very fine line and tight line to walk so well done it's it's amazing and humor as well. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> those funny. guys I mean th-
1: those guys were were full of humor. I mean it, it, it was uh, to me it was a beautiful lesson as well as a human being to see how in in the middle of chaos where, where where you you faced war, you flirt with war on a daily basis how you can still find amazing resources inside yourself and and creativity. I mean not only through the library they build up out of nothing, but also through a a football uh, ground that they would build up, through a magazine that they created from scratch, which they called karkabe, which means chaos. So they were somehow making fun of themselves. And in one of those pages uh, coming out from this magazine, they had these crosswords and they also had these Horoscope, where the they would horoscopes. recreate, they would recreate, um, they would change the astrological signs into uh, other signs related to war. So the Kalashnikov, the 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 the, the barrel bombs, the helicopters. And the advices they would give to their friends were just so much fun and so much, uh, uh, ironic. Like uh, one of the advices was about, okay, so if tomorrow you're invited to have dinner at your friend's house, you'd better eat before going there. Otherwise there wouldn't be anything to eat <laughs> because there was nothing to eat at one point. I mean, the, 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 the city was so, so locked up, so sealed that even the different Eight convoys from the u n couldn 't enter the city, so at one point those guys even had to cultivate their own tiny garden to to grow uh vegetables and uh, to be able to to eat something yeah. uh, but again i mean despite the harsh situation they they would always make fun of it they would always make fun of themselves and they would al- always like you know uh, tease each other uh, whether into their love stories or into their relationship with their mother would keep on calling them and crying on the phone and getting worried for them and they would be like mama I'm living the best days of my youth because you know it's the first time I can express my my feeling of freedom so don't worry for me just go back to your kitchen I mean they were really fun they were like really funny guys
0: yeah it's that resilience really that human nature that in our darkest days we still find some sort of humor and I think I think maybe I'd have thought before reading this that that would that would be stretched if I was in a war zone like how do you find the funny but we do they do and it it does it really really comes across what are you working on at the moment?
1: So now I'm, um, I'm still in Istanbul where I've been based uh, for uh, the five last years after living in uh, other countries in in the region, Iran, Egypt, uh, Lebanon. Uh, so I'm still working as a journalist for my newspaper uh, Le Figaro, uh, which um, uh, takes a lot of my time. Obviously, since the news out here are very uh, uh, like or, or, or like uh, like we have a always busy schedule with, it's with constant. It's a constant non-stop, news, yeah. <laughs> non-stop news. But uh, obviously, I I I love working on book project written projects besides my uh, daily work because i think at the end of the day and that's what i i learned even more by talking with those guys in deraya i think books are so powerful mm-hmm. um, books are a real window to 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 the world to to what's happening and so uh, I'm working on a new project right now um, which would be uh, related to the situation in Turkey i don't want to tell you more about it, but uh, I- I'm-, I'm keeping on writing and-, and and working on such written projects
0: okay, I appreciate your secrecy, but if people if there is an announcement, where can people follow you on the internet to find out what's going on yes i, I am uh, I'm reachable and uh,
1: People can follow my work on on Twitter as well as Facebook and Instagram, which I always try to give also a a different picture of what's going on in the region uh, behind the scary headlines. So if you get into my Instagram uh, profile, you'll get to know also about my love for cats in Istanbul, (laughs) which are amazing creators.
0: <laughs> awesome. Delphine, thank you so so much for chatting with me. It's it's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot.
1: Standard issue for all women.